Film Nerds Unlimited. Lo-fi movie conversations with high-quality movie connoisseurs. Issue 2. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Hey, man. All right. So, um, this might be news to you, uh, but it came out today that Ryan Gosling is going to be the lead in the Blade Runner sequel. Um which is, I think, going to be directed by Denis Villeneuve, I think is how you say his name, um, the dude that did um, Prisoners and Enemy. And he's co-starring with Harrison Ford, who's coming back as Rick Deckard. So how does that news hit you? Well, it hits me weirdly, I guess, because I love Blade Runner. It's my dad's favorite movie. So it'll always hold a special place in my heart and my family's for sure. And, you know, you know personally that I'm not a big fan of super unoriginal ideas out of Hollywood, but I've reached a point where as long as we get a good movie out of it, I I, I am okay with it. I I guess I'm at peace with it. And if I don't get a good movie out of it, then I just tend to ignore it. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, what choice do you have? Yeah, exactly. So if it's good, it's good. That's just the cherry on top of the news that they're being lazy again. And all you can ask for is that these projects have talented people involved, so that box is checked for this, and that they tell a good story with the opportunity that they have, and that remains to be seen. So Ryan Gosling is a great actor. It's great that Harrison Ford is back on board. And this director, whose work I've seen, at least his last two movies, in, in Prisoners and Enemy, he's extremely talented and a guy to keep an eye on. Did I expect or hope that he would go with a Blade Runner sequel as his next movie to follow the mostly original Prisoners and the highly original Enemy? Not necessarily, but if this is what he wants to do, and how he thinks he can best spend his time and tell stories and entertain audiences, then I'm up for it, I guess. Like I said, as long as the script is good and he's got good actors principally, then then I guess we're in good hands. Although I, I would rather him make more movies like Prisoners and Enemy. The same goes for Ryan Gosling, a guy who has made a lot of interesting choices, especially as of late as a young actor. I look to things like Blue Valentine and uh, Place Beyond the Pines with a a, a director like Derek Cianfrance, and I look to Drive and Only God Forgives from a guy like Nicholas Winding Refn. Those are four incredibly unique and impassioned and highly original works from auteurs and exciting choices for a guy like Ryan Gosling who should continue to make original choices like that in movies that are highly original. I mean, I was even watching The Ides of March the other day on cable, George Clooney's movie, the political drama starring Ryan Gosling as this idealistic campaign manager who learns the shadowy ins and outs of the campaign process. And it's not the most original idea in the world, but it's a nice, solid piece of American entertainment and just another sort of notch on the belt of original movies that Ryan Gosling was a part of. So on the surface, I can't say that I'm I'm thrilled that all of these people who have such bright futures ahead of them in original filmmaking 
are making a choice to resurrect an already great, not to be touched in an ideal in an ideal world film and franchise. Now, uh, it's not ideal for me as a uh, as a, a film goer and, and, a, and a lover of film, but. If they make something good, then I guess we have no choice but to be okay with it. Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting because this is kind of the first time that Ryan Gosling is sold out. Um, <laughs> you know, you look at you look at other actors that are his age or even younger. It seems like they go through that cycle of being like a young actor and then being on the indie scene and then um, you know being in some sort of popular thing that takes them to the next level. And then they hop aboard a franchise. I mean, even like Oscar Isaac is going to be in Star Wars. Um, and yet, uh, up to this point, you know, Ryan Gosling probably could have played Superman or, you know, Jack Sparrow or, you know, whatever whatever giant franchise that were probably laid at his feet, and he decided not to. So I think that that's kind of, that that's, I think I find that a little bit interesting. Um, let me throw a quick, uh, quick question at you. You can uh, answer as long or short as you want. So would you rather that, you know, if this thing is happening, would you rather uh, Denis Villeneuve direct this or would you rather Ridley Scott direct this? I think Ridley Scott made a great singular film that deserved no follow-up because of how great it stood on its own. So, Right, right, no, but I'm saying, yeah, it's, it's happening. You got to choose one of those. No, no. So what I'm saying is, I'm perfectly fine with Ridley Scott leaving it alone, based on what he gave us with Blade Runner. So I would rather also, somebody else do it instead of Ridley Scott tarnishing his legacy even more than he has tried to do in the recent past by working on projects like this. Right. And is he even the same director as in as he was in 1982? No, he's not. And, and right. we can look to plenty of movies to suggest that Blade Runner was like nothing people had ever seen. And you cannot say that about anything that he has made recently, even if he's made a good movie. Like, for instance, I like Body of Lies, right? And there are things I like about Matchstick Men. And I'm sure you, you'd point to Kingdom of Heaven, at least the director's cut, and some of these other movies Ridley Scott has made where he has definitely shown that he's still a more than competent filmmaker, but he's not the guy who made Blade Runner. He hasn't shown us that in recent years. And something like Prometheus, a movie that had so much hype surrounding it, revisiting a franchise that he started with Alien, and it just was not even close to the same level in terms of scope or story and direction on the part of Ridley Scott. He's not the guy that has the same drive and vision that he did with Alien and Blade Runner and those movies early in his career, and that's okay. We still have Alien, we still have Blade Runner, and we can still cherish those and look to those as reasons why Ridley Scott is a great filmmaker and always will be in the eyes of people who are really film fans. So would it change any of this conversation if tomorrow the news came out that Villeneuve was fired, just canned off of this, and Gosling brought on Nicholas Winding Refn to direct Blade Runner 2? Would that change any of the conversation for you? Yes, Absolutely. Because I like Nicholas Winding Refn more than that director just because I've seen more of his work and I like the movies of his that I've seen more. And also, if you just are tossing names out there for guys who should make the next Blade Runner movie, then Nicholas Winding Refn is probably going to be the first name on a lot of people's lists. Absolutely. I mean, all of, the neon yeah. lights and, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just because of the tone and style of, of his work so far, 
you can watch a movie like Drive, especially those helicopter shots lingering over Los Angeles at night, and tell that they are directly inspired by the opening shots of Blade Runner. There's no doubt in my mind he'd probably tell you the same thing. So, yeah. yeah so I, now, now that we talked about that, that's kind of I would much rather see that than anything else. And now, well, have I feel you like seen any be, of the director's movies? No, no, I haven't. So I, uh, I have like zero ground to say that. But just the idea of a Nicholas Winding Refn playing in the world of Blade Runner, the fact that I, I, I that is even a vague possibility, and we're not going to get it, just makes me mad. Well, it shouldn't, because Nicholas Winding Refn should be making movies like Drive and Only God Forgets that are his Blade Runners. Right. I agree. I agree at the end of the day. Well, uh, cool. Well, I'm glad, uh, glad I got your thoughts. I'm, I'm, I admire you for not even trying to pronounce the name of the director of Prisoners and uh, Enemy, um, and you let me twist in the wind as I struggled. Um, so I appreciate that. Sure. But, uh, yeah, uh yeah, it was just one of those those news stories that I was just like, wow, I guess that 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 project keeps popping up with news and I keep forgetting that it even exists. And I think as as a fan of Blade Runner that I don't know, I think that tells us an awful lot. So, yeah, hopefully. well, it's one of those things we should just let go, you know, and in studios can't do it because it's an existing property and it may yeah. be profitable because profitable because there happens to be an existing audience. But I personally couldn't tell you if Blade Runner or the sequel would be a marketable commodity for a studio. I don't know. I couldn't guarantee you that it would make money, even if Ryan Gosling, who isn't exactly somebody who lights up the box office in Hollywood, or Harrison Ford at this point with his age, and especially that director, I don't know if that's a combination that is going to give you a money hit. And that's the reason they make these things is to make money. And I'm sure that it would turn some profit of some sort, but if it's not going to make in, in enough money or, or the money that, you know, you, you envision it making and, and the, you know, it being the reason that you do this in the entire first place, then move on to something else and just let that go. You don't have to do it just because it exists and you don't have to come up with a germ of an idea. Yeah, I mean, the, the project that keeps popping up every time I think about this in my brain is uh, another Philip K. Dick adaptation uh, uh, remake, Total Recall, which is yeah. a movie that I, I haven't I haven't heard anything spectacularly bad about. And in fact, the trailer is kind of, I mean, it looked like a kind of a fun science fiction movie, but I haven't watched it because it's a remake of Total Recall, and, yeah. it, and it just doesn't, I, I don't, that that doesn't hook me, and I it didn't make very much money. So at the end of the day, or Conan the Barbarian, you know, it's another yeah. one where it's like, why, why you didn't make that much money, and it didn't seem like you tried to even. So like, you know, I yeah, I, I have the same questions that you do. So the, I don't know. The, Hopefully, the, go ahead. The movie that I think of just as we talk about this, and and as you pitched it, is Wall Street: The Money Never Sleeps. <laughs> sequel, where you right. have this movie from the 80s from a, an extremely well-respected director, especially at the time, and Oliver Stone, resurrect this, and again, existing property, this story that he gave us and that people obviously loved and has become, it was an Oscar winner and has become a, a cult hit in the hearts of many, and people still regard it as a great film. Same goes with Blade Runner. And with that movie, Wall Street 2, you get a young actor uh, throw him, you know, into the mix as the new star and the new face of the franchise, while bringing back 
the old face of the franchise and Michael Douglas to play this character and give it the weight that it deserves, at least if you're going to harken back or reference that original movie and find, I guess, the the mojo that it had and, and the, the thing that people love so much about it, when in actuality, once you make it, it just turns out to be an extremely watered-down version of it because it just doesn't have the same creative charge that the first one has because we're in a different time and the director is a different person. And it's just a hard energy to recreate, especially when the director has aged and become somebody totally different and someone who's interested in telling different stories at this point in his life and career. So, you know, it's not Ridley Scott making the movie like Oliver Stone was making the Wall Street 2 movie, which turned out to be a mediocre film, but it kind of has the same feeling just in terms of the other guts that are emerging as the basis for the project. Yeah, I uh yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty good metaphor. And but I think I think uh I'll end it on the good news is that, you know, these kind of latter-day sequels, the two Jakes with Chinatown or Son of Kong or um 2010, uh movies that aren't bad um from all reports. I've only seen Son of Kong, but the good news is that none of them water down the the originals and and although nobody talks about the two Jakes uh, the fact that nobody talks about it doesn't hurt Chinatown. So hopefully that even if this Blade Runner, which I, I doubt is going to be terrible based on the track record of the people involved, um, and it might be great, um, but the chances, I agree with you, uh, chances are very high that it's just going to be, you know, uh, 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 7 out of 10, just kind of down the line, mediocre studio product. Um, but that's not going to harm the original Blade Runner at all. Did Prometheus so, uh, harm the original Alien for you? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I, I it may have for other people, um, but I, I like Prometheus more than other people. But it, I can't deny that it's a right down the middle, you know, standard studio sci-fi action movie. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. And when and with a little bit of distance, I think. I think in five years, nobody's going to talk about Prometheus. Um, and if they're, they're not talking, talking about it now, I mean, <laughs> we are in this moment. We are, yeah, but, right, yeah. But I think even the people that were that were, you know, they're they were losing their minds with anger at that movie in 2012. I think, you know, they're not going to think twice about it. And I think most people are going to be pretty embarrassed at their reaction. Uh, yeah, and we're time. yeah, and we're talking about it, but not in the way that when you say, "Are people going to be talking about this ten years from now?" Hope you're talking about it, not in the no. way that we're talking about it, where we're asking the question. Does this tarnish the legacy of the filmmaker in right. in in first movie that spawned a movie like Prometheus? That's not how you want to talk about a movie several years from now, right? And uh, I would say the studio doesn't want to talk want us to talk about it, but they don't care. Uh, we went opening weekend. I went twice, and uh, they're they're fine with that. So yeah, and we'll probably be there opening weekend for this Blade Runner movie. Let's not kid ourselves. Yep, you're right. All right, Ben, well, that's uh, super depressing, so uh, thanks. Hey, Craig, what's going on, man? Not much. How about you? Uh, not much. Uh, so I wanted to call today and uh, ask you about, since uh, I talked to some of the other film nerds about more modern stuff, I wanted to tap your knowledge of uh, of older Hollywood cinema and just kind of talk to you about the uh, Best Picture nominees of 1957. Um, 
So what's uh, so I guess go ahead and just kind of list those and kind of tell me a little bit about each of them because I think two of them especially are very familiar to everybody, but a few of them are, are probably a little bit more obscure. Yeah, so 1957, the winner was the bridge on the River Kwai, which is um, really awesome. Um, it's, you know, David Lean, um, who did, you know, um, Lawrence of Arabia and stuff like that. Um, so he's he's an epic director. Bridge on the River Kwai is just epic. It's World War II, but it's about a group of... Um, I believe they're British uh, prisoners yeah. of war, and they're building a bridge that would help the Japanese or the Axis powers um, kind of help them out in bringing materials and ammunition and what have you. So they kind of get uh, very prideful in their work, and, and it's a, so it's really interesting contrast in working for the enemy and trying to do a good job because of your work ethic, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's a long movie, but it is it's great. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 probably. I mean, I haven't seen a ton of David Lean movies, but it's my favorite. Um, uh, just because the way it it it, it uh, butts that kind of that that obsessive British aspect of it with the freewheeling William Holden American character, um, I think it's a really nice look at those kind of three national identities, the, the British, the American, and the Japanese. Yeah, and I really like how when William Holden kind of like gets back, in, he, he's escaped, and he comes back in like incognito, uh, sort of like Rambo, with right. a crew of guys, and they pick up like wives on the way that like yeah. carry their stuff for him. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, how it should be, really. <laughs> yeah. Rambo with a tri- with a bridge. That's basically what it is. Right. Yeah, and so let me just look and see. Bridge and River Choir won. It, it had eight nominations and won seven. Wow. So. But <laughs> as a segue, if that's okay, that sure. eight nominations was not the most of that year. The most was a movie called Sayonara. Sayonara. Which is a total piece of crap. Is it was it nominated for Best Picture? Yes, it definitely was. And yeah. I and I unfortunately watched it. Okay. What is Sayonara? It's um it is a movie about I don't want to offend anyone here, but I think it takes place in Japan. Um is that why you hate yeah. it? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, just after the Korean War, okay. uh, or during it, and sort of how... Um, I mean, it's a pretty interesting concept in that you've got a lot of American soldiers over stationed in Japan during the Korean War, and they uh, meet their wives over there, um, but they can't bring them back um, to the United States. And the... Arm, like the army or U.S. armed services over there won't let the soldiers stay. So it's kind of it, it's kind of sad because they're forced to leave their wives and they can't take them and they can't stay either. So um, and that's that's cool. But what really sucks is Marlon Brando. Have you heard of this guy? <laughs> uh, it's the only yeah. 
if you only watched this movie, you would think he was the worst actor ever. Really? I encourage anyone to go out there and just YouTube a clip of him talking in this movie because I believe he's supposed to be from Texas, and he gives the worst impression of a Georgia accent I've ever heard. <laughs> wow. So that and that was like his heyday, like the fifties, like was Marlon Brando. He was on fire. Yeah, definitely. But well, that I mean, it does sound sound like a fantastic, you know, premise for a movie. So it's pretty disappointing that that it didn't pan out. Um, Yeah. So real quick, I got a question for you. What when what? Okay, so in the scene where the soldiers leave their wives, what do they say to them? Um, is there like one? Is there like one word? <laughs> um, they just say bye. Au revoir. <laughs> okay. All right. I think I'm starting to figure out why this is a bad movie. All right. So what? <laughs> what other? Um, what's another nom- best picture nominee from that year? Okay. Um, another one is uh, which is not a good one, in my opinion, but it's slightly better than Sayonara. It's called Peyton Place. Peyton Place, okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people like this. Um, and, and I should say, Sayonara is 100% on Rotten Tomatoes with nine reviews. Really? But anyways, yeah. Well, actually, no, but no, no go, good, good. But let's back up. Well, so what What Oscars did Sayonara win? Sayonara, okay, as I said, had ten nominations, and they won four, and those were, let's look, uh, Red Buttons, one supporting actor. Okay. Um, Miyoshi Nike, supporting actress. Okay. And that's, and, and that's fine. They they weren't they weren't terrible, but um, and it also won art direction and sound recording. It, interesting. Yeah. Interesting that such a I mean it sounds like more of a performance driven movie, but I guess yeah I'm assuming since it took place in Japan, the art direction there's probably a lot of opportunities to do some. Some neat stuff there, yeah, the, the, especially the, in the fifties, right? Like the six-inch high tables and um, like the like no chairs, right. and but I think and the, of course the sliding doors. But I think there were several really extended scenes of puppet shows, like. But, Okay. Like the kind of like Avenue Q where the puppeteers are like in plain sight, mm. but they have like these weird dragon puppets, mm-hmm. and um, it's just the camera showing the puppet show and the camera showing like Marlon Brando like try and stay awake, <laughs> and it's and that's all it is, and it's infuriating as a viewer. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, I mean it sounds fascinating. Uh, real quick, do you have the uh, uh, the foreign uh, film nominees up to that year? Yeah, let's see. I'm just curious if, if there is any Kurosawa because that was this is his one of his hot streaks. Yeah, I don't. I want to see Italy, India, Germany, Norway, and France. Oh wow! Because Throne of Blood came out in 1957, um, and that movie is good. Yeah, nowhere to be seen on it, which isn't surprising. Foreign seems to rarely get it right. Interesting. No, you're right. All right, so sorry. So back to Peyton Place. Yeah, oh, okay, Peyton Place. So Peyton Place is sort of 
it's sort of this movie selling its talent at this, you know, American small town, typical. Um, and we're in the 1950s, so I think the point the movie's trying to get across is that on the on the surface level, everything's hunky dory and fine, and you know, uh, but people are um, getting molested by their drunk dads and um, getting in trouble and being unruly. Uh, and there's divorce and all kinds of stuff um, happening below the surface. Um, so it's almost like a blue... It's not, it's not as much of, of that as Blue Velvet, but it's that kind of uh, thing. <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the father... The father in question here is fueled by alcohol and not sort of like nitrous or whatever. Thought, but yeah, right. But um, yeah, and and there's nothing that comes anywhere close to being shot as as cool as anything in Blue Velvet. But um, and it ends with a a, a trial. Um, you know, or, you know, abortion is in the mix, and you know. In pregnancy and and it's, and I think what the movie was trying to do is say, hey, this is this looks like a, a fine, upstanding American town, when really it has a dark, it's got dark innards. Right, right. Um, but I wasn't having any of it. I didn't really like it. Okay, so who who directed Peyton Place? That's a guy. His name's Mark Robson. Oh, okay. And he did, um, wow, he was an assistant editor on Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Anderson. Well. Unfortunately, that doesn't translate to direction. But as a director, I'm just looking, nothing really. Well, it's, it's, it, I mean, there's definitely a, a straight, a thematic straight line from Magnificent Amberson to that plot description. In that sense. True. Basically. That's an excellent point. Yeah. If only there were humor in Peyton Place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that wouldn't. That wasn't yeah, it, sound, it sounds like so far it's, it's it sounds like both Sinara and Peyton Place are kind of the same thing we have now, which is kind of those humorless, you know, Oscar right. dramas. Yeah, it's and it's sixty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm not the only one in this case. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to see what else it was. Let's see. They had several um, Lana Turner nominated for actress. It had about five acting nominations. Cinematography five? for some reason. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, none of them won. It's just a bunch of people talking. You know, it's just people in a town not being as good as they appear to be. Right. Yeah. There's not. There's yeah. not a whole lot of narrative thrust or dramatic tension aside from that one thing. Which right. you know, it, which again in nineteen fifty seven in a public dialogue that you know, that's an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I'm sure it went over much better then, unfortunately there's you know, that that's that's kind of not an issue yeah these days. So Yeah, we all talk about our drug dads now. Too much yeah. almost, yeah. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> so it's a Peyton place. So it's, it's really a, 
it's really kind of not that great a year when you when you think those two. But then, um, I I had one of those um, experiences where I'm just trying to watch all these movies and get things like Sayonara and Peyton Place, and you're like, this is garbage. Why am I wasting my time watching these stupid movies that some random people thought were the best? But then you get um, Witness for the Prosecution. Yes. And it is fantastic. Is that oh. Otto Preminger? It is Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder? Oh, okay. That, I think I'm thinking of Anatomy of Murder. Wow, okay. Yes. Those go hand in hand. I prefer Witness for the Prosecution. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, it's um, it, it has some humor. That's a little bit, but it's a it's a riveting uh, mystery uh, courtroom drama. Um, it's one of those courtroom dramas, if I can say, not say too much, but it's sort of like one of those Matlock courtroom dramas where he practically like solves the mystery in the trial. Right. Um. You know, which never happens in real life. They happen every episode of Matlock, and it, and it sort of happens here, and a little more believable here. But uh, it's yeah. a, it's a it's a great twist um, of a story at the end. Um, and the um, the uh, the lead actor, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, Tyrone Power. Oh yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Now I'm talking about Charles Lawton. Yeah, that guy. Oh, Charles Lawton. Yeah. Interesting. He's the lead? Yeah. He he's the lead, um he's a lawyer. And he's really good. Yeah. Really good yeah. Charles Charles Lawton was a good and, actor and, and director. And, yeah, and, and Tyrone Power was good as well. Um, Marlene Dietrich's also in it. So it's a bunch of it's it's a bunch of great actors, uh, not yeah. a bunch. There's, there's it's a handful of great actors that kind of move it along, but that's like an all star lineup. And, and yeah. yeah, yeah. Billy Wilder's cashing in on his clout right here. Yeah, and directing oh, yeah. something he didn't he didn't even write, which is oh really another thing. It, yeah, it's an Agatha Christie. Uh, that's right. Adaptation. Yeah. So uh, did so, I did I A L Diamond. Uh, co-write it at all? Did he have anything to do, or was it just Wilder picking up this script? Let me see. Because Diamond worked on basically every Wilder movie with him on the screenplay. Yeah, it was a short story that... Hmm. I can't find any information on that at this point. But it's always cool when a director that usually... it. Writes that when when he adapts with somebody else's, it's like a Paul Thomas Anderson sort of adapted, which he does actually. So that's not a good example, but right. Before, but, I, I, I mean, guess before, yeah, yeah before, yeah, before yeah. um this most recent one, <laughs> um, Inherent Vice, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, well, the cool thing about um, Wilder, I mean, he was one of the first the kind of like consistent writer directors, you know, is him and him and Preston Sturges kind of. Um but uh but yeah he did not come up with the 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 script. He I mean he did work on the script but he didn't come up with the, the kind of idea. Um, yeah. yeah I'm yeah I'm sure he messed with it a lot. 
but yeah, it was it was not his original idea. So okay, so not surprisingly, the first movie that we've talked about, other than Bridge on the River Choir, Quiet, that you've really liked is also one directed by another great, like all time great director. So yeah, yeah. And then that leads us into the third one, third all time. I think one of third all time great directors, um, Sidney Lumet. Yeah. Man. Yep. One of the uh, great, maybe the greatest debut movie ever. I mean, he had never directed a movie before that. Oh, and it's yeah. I mean, how many times has it been adapted since then? It's constantly being adapted and oh, sure, cities across America. Yeah, I mean, and it's a, and it's such a great story. It's such a great um, play and a great script. Um, but he manages to bring something uniquely cinematic to it. You know, with the starting the starting the movie with kind of different. Um, I forget if he starts high or low. No, he, he starts low. Uh, all the camera angles kind of start low yeah. and, and oppressive, and then kind of as the movie unfolds and as the case becomes, uh, you know, more and more uh, uncertain, uh, it, the camera kind of raises up, and at the end, the, the, the whole thing is shot from kind of like the sky almost when the, when the rain stops. I mean, it is, the decisions he makes, it, it, it puts to shame all of the all of the directors nowadays that just kind of set up a shot reverse shot and just let people talk. It's, it's, it's uniquely cinematic and it didn't need to be. Yeah, it, it's, uh, that's an excellent point. And have you read uh, his book? Yes. Oh yeah. I read Making it. Movies. I read it. Yeah. I read it on my honeymoon. I'm sure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I read no country for old men on my honeymoon. Yeah. But, um, it's a good yeah, time I, to read the, the completely technical exercises. <laughs> So that his book Making Movies is um it breaks movie making down to its the accounting level and to the mundane decisional level, but then also to hey, I get to I get to soup up this movie by creatively and artistically making camera movement decisions or placement decisions that yeah. help the audience to feel what they need to feel and probably can't feel if they're not reading it on a piece of paper or experiencing exactly. it themselves. Yeah, he yeah. was a master at that. And, and you watching some of his movies, somebody like me, it just goes right over my head. I don't notice a lot of that. But, yeah, I, and, I, but I think and, it works on me. I don't know he's doing it, but it works. Exactly. That's that's what I was going to say. It's like he he's, he, he's kind of like the Coen brothers in that way that he... he does all these things with the camera. Um, and I guess I mean the Coen brothers kind of more downplayed films, not like Raising Arizona, but he doesn't draw attention to, to the decisions he's making. At, but yet at the same time, every decision is, is made, you know, he, again, he's not just showing up and, and letting the DP decide to put the camera in the middle of the room. I mean, he's, he's really doing work. And yeah, my, one of my favorite things about that book is how, much he treats directing just like work. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't trump it up into some sort of great cosmic, you know, favor that he's doing the universe by creating great art. He's just he just tells the story of going in there and tinkering away at this at this work uh, and and going home at the end of the day and having dinner. And my, my, I think my favorite thing about the book and one of the re- relieving things about the book is um, he talks about like kind of his average day 
And he's like, yeah, you know, a limo picks me up, or not a limo, but a car picks me up so that I don't have to drive the set. And then I get to set, and I look around, and I talk about the setups with the AD and the DP, and then we shoot in the morning, and then I go take a nap. And then we shoot again. And I was like, oh, man, that'd be awesome if I got to take a nap on the set. Or at any job, it'd be nice to be able to go take a nap. But it's like, it goes to show that he, he, like, the most important thing is, like, what's going on in his head and and making sure that, like, the, like you said, it's like an accounting process. It's, it's a, it's an A to, A to Z kind of process that you have to go through. And there's no reason for it to be this big, you know, uh, emotional ordeal. It's just, you're doing, you're going to do the best work you can. Um, and I think 12 Angry Men is a fantastic example of that. Yeah, it's, um, I, 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 finished the 1950s and 12 Angry Men is uh, like the number two of the whole decade for me. Um, it's just, it's so simple and you think that's like, is 12 Angry Men really that high up on your list of the best movies from the 1950s? And you sit down and think about what it does and what it's trying to do and, and how it goes about doing it. It's just it's undeniably one of the best yeah. ever made. Yeah, it's 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 really great. The um well that that kind of brings up a good uh direction to go in. Uh what like are there any other movies from 1957 that you think should have been since I mean we've covered all five, right? Yes. Yeah. Are there any other movies that you may have seen during that year that you think should have been nominated? There are, and that's kind of what my whole um one of the main points of me going through and trying to watch all these Best Picture nominations is to say, in however many years have gone by, which shouldn't have been nominated and which should have. Right. So that's something I always think about. And I think um, it wasn't Sweet Smell of Success from that year. I, I, I'm i not sure. I have not seen that, but that sounds right. Let's see. Um, Let me just double check. Yeah. And then you can edit if I'm I wrong. Prob- I probably won't, but... That's okay. It definitely it is 1957. Okay. It's, yeah, so that I can see why maybe that got left out because it is a stark. Um, it's kind of gritty. It's very much noir. Um, and and what you have here is you got a couple of war movies and some other approachable films. And I'm sure Agatha Christie was a huge deal back then. Um, but well, pa- you know, Paths of Glory was that year. Um, and I, yeah. I, I, I have, a, I guess, I don't know why that would not be nominated. I mean, I guess maybe it was kind of controversial because it, it calls into question, you know, the actions of, of, uh, you know, friendly, friendly nations uh, to to us at the time. Right. But, uh, but in terms of just kind of dramatic weight and film craft, the fact that it, it didn't get nominated is is kind of crazy now. Yeah, and I think. Um... Paths of, Paths of Glory, absolutely. Um, it's one of my favorites that were nominated um, in that whole decade. Um, talk about talk about camera movement or, or just directorial um, yeah. um, prowess. It's just there's just tons of things in there that. Oh yeah, there's that there's that yeah. there's that one long tracking shot uh, through oh, the man. trenches. Oh, it's just yeah. beautiful. A face in the crowd. Uh, yeah, there's no way that was going to get nominated. It's Elias Kazan and Andy Griffith and Patricia Neal. Yeah, he's uh, Andy Griffith is just like a complete 
Oh, uh, bastard in that movie. It's insane. But, man, I mean, he's showing off his chops that he really never had to use again. But yeah. um, he had a quite a great career. Well, and, and well don't forget about that um, 80s um, spinoff uh, show, Evil Matlock. <laughs> yeah. He had a black suit and um, <laughs> the goatee. Ate, ate bratwurst <laughs> on the side of the road. Um, yeah, so a, a face in the crowd is one I'm, I really like a lot because I think it's one of the great. And a face in the crowd is kind of one that gets, you know, suppressed a little bit when you start talking about his movies. But yeah, Sweet Smell of Success, uh, Paths of Glory, A Face in the Crowd, all those I have seen that I that I might put in my top five of that year. Yeah. Um, and here's some that I haven't seen, though. I, th- I think these are from that year, so correct me if I'm wrong. There's um haven't seen Funny Face, uh, Wild Strawberries, or The Seventh Seal. Ooh. Well, The Seventh Seal was nominated for... Was that one of the foreign language ones? I feel like it should be. I feel like The, the Seventh Seal is like the the kind of mainstream cliche pick for what a foreign movie is. You know, it's good. Yeah. It's Swedish. It's about death. It's about nihilism, and it's black and white. It doesn't say so on here. Really? I'm looking at Wikipedia. Who's never wrong? No, ever. So, okay. So, good lord. So, Wild Strawberries, Seven Samurai. I mean, not Seven Samurai. Throne of Blood and Seven Seal were not nominated for Academy Awards. And I wonder what the story behind that is. I wonder if these just got you know, uh, praise later on or, or yeah, but or I mean, these are true snubs. Uh, I mean, but Bergman and Kurosawa both like winning, you know, can film festival awards at this point. So yeah. they had no excuse not to award them. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Sounds like straight up snubs to me. Yeah. There's also the YouTube clip uh, taken from the middle of a tornado from 1957 <laughs> on an iPhone that we should discuss. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was crazy because it was the. Uh, yeah. It was they they filmed it on an iPhone, but they they had to edit it on a Moviola. Um, so they actually had to transfer it to uh, uh, early magnetic tape um, to get that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that one is is one of those that it's kind of short. It's it's super dramatic, um, but I don't know if it if it's really better than Seventh Seal. Well, I haven't seen the Seventh Seal, so I really can't say. Well, okay, then the tornado video is probably better. Um, so, okay, so go through real quick, and uh, we'll wrap up with you ranking. I, I think it'll be kind of obvious based on our discussion, but go ahead and rank the five best picture nominees. For uh, for that year, okay. Uh, number one is Twelve Angry Men, and number two is The Bridge on the River Kwai. Both of those are four star movies, but I think Twelve Angry Men is is the better movie. Um, the third is Witness for the Prosecution, and I, and I gave that one four stars too. I just loved all three of those movies. But Twelve Angry Men, Bridge on the River Kwai, Witness for the Prosecution, and then Peyton Place and Sayonara. Oh wow. Okay. So so you've you're definitely you're you're going Peyton Place over Sayonara. It, but Marlon Brando is, is so bad that in this movie. Yeah. Interesting. Man, now I want to watch it for just that reason. It's, it's bad. Wow. Excellent. It's an easy yeah, decision. Think, 
I think I would probably, I, I think personally, I, I think on my 50s list or even the list of that year, I think I've got River Kwai over 12 Angry Men um, just for the scale and for the fact that it's my favorite David Lean movie. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, man, that is that is a tough that's a tough battle to to fight out there, and I definitely want to watch Witness for the perse- uh, Prosecution for the Persecution, um, yeah, because I've heard nothing but good things about that, and Billy Wilder is just one of those essential essential guys. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks for talking to me about this. Uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks for calling. For more from the Film Nerds, go to FilmNerds.com and AspectRadioShow.com.